jarring cacophony of mixing up various versions of the Doctor Who theme means only one thing. It's time for another Power of Three podcast. The classic format has been restored this week, with a trio of middle-aged Scottish Doctor Who fans coming together to discuss, digest, digress and disagree as we talk about our favourite time-travelling hero and all forms of his adventures, whether on television, audio, comic strips, animations, novels or magazines. I'm Kenny Smith and I have a couple of co-conspirators with me, one who you know and another who you don't. Co-conspirator number one, who has appeared in more than 70 episodes of The Power of Three. Which one are you, the dandy or the clown? <laughs> I'm the clown, I'm sure, although my, my, my current attempt at facial hair is, is quite dandified. Yes, I've appeared in more than 70 episodes of The Power of Three, whether I like it or not. Yes, hello everyone, Dave here, welcome back, thank you for joining us. And over here in the other corner, it's time to meet co-conspirator number two. A silly black used to say, what's your name and where'd you come from? My name is John Silla. I am from Greenock and I'm a Doctor Who fan. Thank you for, for having me. Uh, I'm wearing my special title sequence t-shirt. <laughs> Hope you appreciate that. I put that on specially for you tonight. Absolutely. For those of you who can't see, who are watching at home, that's all of you. That was a third Doctor title sequence t-shirt, which is rather brilliant. And of course, if you're watching in black and white, it was still the third Doctor title sequence. John, welcome to The Power of Three. A delight to have you. Yes, welcome, John. Welcome, John. It's lovely to be here. John, tell us Although, very briefly about your Doctor Who fandom. Oh, well, I go way back. I'm... Uh, I am a child of, of the, the 70s. John Pertwee was my doctor. My first memories of watching television were of watching the sea devils coming up out of the, the water. As you said there about, you know, being in black and white and colour and so on, although we're going to be talking tonight about the move into colour, for me, Doctor Who was in black and white until uh, John Pertwee's last season. So although, you know, we talk about, you know, how impressive it was to move into colour uh, for, for most of us ordinary poor folk, we had to, to wait until at least the mid-70s before we got to see it in, in, in colour. But I've been a Doctor Who fan since as long as I can remember. The very first thing that I, I saved consciously was one of the, the Nestle Doctor Who chocolate wrappers. I remember saying, I'm going to keep this and that was the start of a of a slippery slope, which continues, alas, to this day, much to the consternation of my bank manager and <laughs> anyone else who knows me. Well, we're delighted that you're on that slippery slope and definitely Doctor Who fights Master Plan Q. That was the name of the story on that, if I remember, wasn't it? Something like that. It, yeah, I believe so. But uh, we should do an episode on that. That'll be an interesting episode. Yeah, we'd like to do dramatic reading. We could each read them with a, mm. a chapter. That'd be quite good. I would like you to see my rapper. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, still have it. Yeah, you still, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. You get a fortune mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. Open yeah, eBay, well. get it on, get it sold. You get thirty quid for that, definitely. Well. I'll start the bids at twenty-five p, and you'd still be making a profit from what you originally paid for it. Perhaps yeah. not. Anyway, gentlemen, we are convened here not to talk about chocolate bars tonight. We are going to have a wee chat to follow up an episode that we did oh so long ago about Doctor Debuts. And we're going to be discussing the first adventures of three different incarnations of the Time Lord, who we all love. And we're going to be chatting about the debuts of the third, the sixth and the twelfth Doctors. Crikey, there's a fact of three involved there. How appropriate for the power of three. Oh yeah, the applause. That's an accidentally on purpose. That's good. It's worth pointing out that the, the Doctor Debuts was one of our very first episodes. 
where we talked about, uh, I think it was the 11th hour. Was it Power of the Daleks and Time of the Rani? Was that? It was okay? indeed. Which almost led to me quitting almost as soon as we started because I was so pissed off with Mr. Harris. But the least we say about that, the better. Let's move on to, <laughs> to tonight. You know, yes. As Doctor Who fans, since we like things in chronological order, let's start with the third Doctor and spearhead from space. It's started, hasn't it? Yes. Window dummy is coming alive. It's happened. Do you seriously expect me to believe that? Early this morning, a shower of about 50 meteorites landed in Essex. Six months ago, a smaller shower of meteorites, about five or six, landed in the same area. That's impossible. The odds against two lots of meteorites landing in exactly the same place must be incredible. They are, I'm sure. They are. Since Unit was born, there have been two attempts to invade this planet. We had help from a scientist. You really believe in a man who's helped to save the world twice? With the power to transform his physical appearance? I'm not sure yet. It may not be the same man. An alien who travels through time and space in a police box? Is it true there's a man from space in there? Nonsense. I don't know where you get the story. We heard there's something odd about it. Creatures. Made an affection. We shall activate them all tonight. Destroy. Total destruction. And of course, if we're talking about a TV story, then we definitely need to refer to our friends at TARDISFANDOM.com. And let's see what they have to say about Spearhead from Space. There's quite a lot. Spearhead from Space was the... Oh, crikey, a pop-up has just appeared. That's great. And now it's gone. Crikey's <laughs> pop-up was more interesting. I won't tell you it was in the picture, but I definitely approved of Seven of Nine. Crikey, who'd have thought we'd get deep... We'd have got Star Trek in here. Anyway, Spearhead from Space was the first serial of Season 7 of Doctor Who, continuing from the final episode of The War Games, blah, 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 blah. Significant change in the format of Doctor Who, blah, blah, Exile on Earth. Here we go. Here's the important stuff we all need to know. The story also introduced the Doctor's binary cardiovascular system and became an oft-repeated feature of Time Lord physiology after. Moreover, it introduced both the nesting consciousness and its android agents, the Autons, who reappeared in future stories. Russell T. Davis used this story as a template when he wrote The Future, blah, 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 blah. I also did some common features with both Stephen Moffat and Chris Chibnall, blah, 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 blah. Um, Spearhead from Space was the first Doctor Who story to be produced in colour. Behind the scenes, it was the last contribution of producer Derek Sherwin after he was convinced by his Doctor Who predecessor, Peter Bryant, to join him on the BBC's detective drama at Bob Temple in the middle of principal photography. Blah, blah, blah. BBC studio cameramen walked out. Location filming. Made in 60mm film. Over 40 years later, Sherman's decision to switch to film made it possible for Spearhead to easily adapt to new media. It is the first Doctor Who story of the classic era, discounting the 96 telly movie, to be released in Blu-ray format. And the first classic story to receive an HD remaster specifically for the format. Well, there we go. What a lot to say. But that's behind-the-scenes stuff. John. Why don't you tell us how great Spearhead from Space is? Not that I'm biased and love it. Well, I entirely agree with you. I mean, well, what what's not to praise about it? I mean, it's such a bold, emphatic start to, to a new era. Although people often talk about how it kind of builds on the 
the legacy of the of the the web of fear and those kind of uh, late Trouton stories it just feels completely new and fresh and it's not just to do i think with the transition to color or even the fact that it's all on film there's just something about that kind of 70s energy how long it lasts i don't know but it just feels completely different and of course it is different because of the conscious decision that's been made to to strand the the doctor on 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 earth um, I mean, I was having a heated debate with a, a friend of mine who's a, a journalist for a well-known English broadsheet, and he's a, an old-school Doctor Who fan, and he says, I won't watch any of the new stuff because it's like a different show. And I say, but look, it's always been a different show. You know, if you look at An Unearthly Child, The Spearhead from Space, it's utterly different. The only common themes are the Doctor and the TARDIS, you know, and they're still there, albeit in this one. And this season, the TARDIS effectively becomes a piece of furniture in the corner. So we're, all we're left with is the Doctor and his new and his new companion, and that gives us and moves us to to Pertwee, you know, who for me is is the governor. Uh, although I really grew up watching Tom Baker, you kind of imprint on your first Doctor, as I'm sure every Doctor Who fan will say. And 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 for me, it's that face that comes to mind when I when I think of the Doctor that was the Doctor that I tried to dress up as um, when I was a wee boy first thing I asked for I think when my mum was saying well what do you like to dress up as for Halloween and I said well I want I want a Doctor Who cape and she went and made me a cape but it was just a cape that you tied round you know and I said mum I want you need to put your arms through it you know <laughs> you don't put your arms through capes that's not how it works so yeah Pertwee is so good in this. He has he has it from from the word go, or rather, he has his own doctor from the word go. You know, I'm not saying there's no character development in in his four seasons, but you know what we see here is essentially the same uh, doctor that you'll see uh, at the end of Planet of the Spiders, the mix of the patrician uncle, the authoritarian, the crazy scientist with his gadgets. And oh, the gurning, of course, he comes out <laughs> all guns blazing. Uh, one of the, one of the, uh, see what I did there. One of the the great motifs of the of the Pertwee era. So so he's absolutely fantastic in this, even with that element of little suppressed and controlled comedy. And of course, everyone would have been expecting Pertwee to be this comedic figure, but he's he's dead straight. But you can tell as just the odd kind of little twinkle in there that he's keeping control of. And the other two regulars, as they are at that point, Nicholas Courtney and Caroline John, are fantastic. And of course, the whole thing is really set off by the Autons. Um, what an amazing idea to to come up with. It just tapped into something that was really everywhere in people's lives. And to make that a source of, a source of threat, a source of menace was just so so clever and it's just so well executed throughout the throughout the story including the famous and chilling high street scene of the the, the autons being activated and um, there's there's just so much in it that just works perfectly for me absolutely absolutely dave what was your take on it because obviously you're a big pert to be fan yeah i agree with a lot an awful lot with, with what john has said already so I'll, I'll try not just to repeat it um i this is a story that i know inside out back to the front because i got it from one of the very first vhs doctor who stories that i got got it for my 15th birthday once upon a time and you know i hadn't watched it for for ages i think to be honest i want to kind of echo and maybe go a little further than what john was saying about how much of a reboot it was 
I mean, if you compare season seven to, to season six, it's, it's night and day. You know, they were making season six by the seat of the pants. It's all over the place tonally and, you know, and story type and all that sort of thing. But you hit the Pertwee era and there's a, cons- I've said this in the podcast before, I'm sure there's a real consistency to the time that John Zay is the incumbent doctor. You know, there's a, you can tell that Terence Dix is properly disciplined and Barry is properly focused and, you know, there obviously there are some stories in the Pertwee era that are maybe a wee bit tackier than others and to, be, to, to use a harsh one. But, you know, there's a consistency of tone and quality and approach and, you know, Spearhead kicks it all off and I mean, it looks luscious on film. It's a real shame that they didn't make the rest of the series on film because, you know, you can just imagine how good it all would have looked. The thing that sort of struck me watching it this time, just how good Nicholas Courtney is, you know, returning, you know, third story as, as, as Lethby Stewart, how good Caroline John is from the from the, the word go. And how good, um, I forget his name, the guy playing Captain Monroe, it's tremendous. It's a real shame he didn't come back. It's interesting, noting, sort of observing Johnsy, sort of feeling his way into it. You know, he doesn't get too much to do in the first episode, but gradually his part builds up to, you know, get to the final episode and, you know, and he's, he's centre stage. It's, it's interesting how they use the first episode to re-establish the unit, the brigadier and all that sort of stuff. One thing that I really was taken by this time was the relationship, <laughs> the relationship between the poacher and his wife was absolutely hilarious. You know, why are you staring at woman? I'd love, I'd love a, I'd love a big Finnish people series about their courtship. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'll write it for them if you're listening, Mr. Briggs. I also felt this time more think more so than any other time that I've watched it. I felt really sorry for Hibbert and Ransom. You know these two guys from the plastic factory. They get caught up in all this nonsense. John would not was obviously was in Doctor Who a few times, and he's he's really good in this. And the other. The other thing was Hugh Burden as Channing. Now, since the last time I watched Beerhead, I've watched a few episodes of a programme called The Mind of Mr. M.G. Reader, in which he was the lead, playing a rather sort of doctorish sort of figure, it must be said. So it's very interesting having a bit more context about his career than I had previously when I watched the stories. It's really interesting seeing him playing the body and being so contained and so rigid and plastic. I was also oh. struck by the the sheer horror of, you know, what I like to call the bus stop massacre. You know, John mentions that sequence from the Autons Activate and there really hadn't been anything in Doctor Who like it. You know, you could argue maybe the Cybermen coming out of the, the sewers and marching through London and, and the invasion was quite good. And some of the scenes in the war machines. But this is the first time really that we had proper scary sci-fi horror happening in the streets of Britain. And it's amusing sort of... <laughs> You know, it's obviously, it looks a very ad hoc bus stop. I don't think it's been there very long. But just the thought of window dummies coming to life and attacking people is a fantastic idea. And it's no it's no wonder they went, they went back and used it again. It's a solid 9.5 for me for Spearhead. It really is. I don't really do marks out of 10, but it's it's pretty faultless. And it's, a, you know, the only thing, downside, I think, is that the, the ad hoc way they had to make a lot of it on film means that, you know, some of the, the sets are quite sort of limited and all. I don't think it really does it a lot of harm. I, I really enjoyed seeing it again, despite the fact that I knew it inside out. But I still managed to find a, you know, get a new sort of a new appreciation of it in, in certain areas. Kenny, yes, I love Spearhead. It was like you, one of the first VHSs I've got. Do you know? I've just actually done a quick, I've quickly written it down there. Do you know that I've bought Spearhead from Space five times so far, and obviously there will be a sixth. Original VHS said unedited VHS. Then came the original DVD. Then there was the reissued DVD and I bought the Blu-ray as well. So when it comes to the box set, 
six times. That's how much I like Spear yeah. Open Space, and I'm happy to buy it without any grumbles whatsoever. That's a dig at me, listeners, for refusing to buy the web, the new DVD of the Web of Fear because I'd already bought it so many times. Kenny's, that's a dig at me. Kenny's, <laughs> Kenny's furious at me because it means we're denied an episode where we talk about the new Web of Fear release. That's what that's about, listeners. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was saying, no, I'm not buying the Web of Fear. I've already bought what, episode one 15 times. I'm not buying it again. <laughs> anyway, sorry, yes. I interrupted. Um, I noticed also <laughs> that um, our friends at TARDIS Wiki hadn't mentioned Liz Shaw's introduction. They mentioned about every other detail. Liz Shaw, really? Caroline John. Yeah, no mention of her. Even though I did all the bloody bloody blahs, no mention of her there. Shocking. Sexist my, pigs. And my, I know. Liz, I think it's fantastic. Instantly, you get the character, the fact she's got a spiky relationship, cynical about everything. The way she raises that eyebrow when the Brigadier's saying, and she's saying, little blue men, things like that. Fabulous. As you mentioned, Hugh Burden, fantastic as Channing. Some really, really clever direction in here from Derek Martinez, particularly that shot when Channing looks through the window and his face is all distorted by the mirrored door. I think that's fantastic. I just think that's so, so clever and so well done. And it really is such an iconic story so many great moments in it as you say the Autons massacre the Autons coming to life going down the street that brilliant music from Dudley Simpson to go with it as well and you can see absolutely why Russell T would use this pretty much as having been a Rose having been a reboot for Doctor Who just as this story was and it sets the tone perfectly you could start watching it as if it's a new series and pretty much you take out the TARDIS scene the Doctor had just been found in the woods and pretty much it could have been a brand new series and here we go yeah. let's find out what's going on but for me, it's it's a great story, brilliant, brilliantly written, great dialogue, and it really sets you up to think, yep, this is a new revamp series and I want to see more. And I have to say, when I did finish episode four, I was quite tempted to put on Doctor Who and the Silurians, but no, I didn't. Instead, I put on the next story we're going to talk about. I can sense some massive danger threatening the universe. So these are your prodigies. Once they have served me, I shall have no further use for them. That's it, of course, the children. Asmael, you old dog! I am no longer master of Draconda, but I can still save my people. He must be faced by some unimaginable disaster. Giant gastropods. Now we're going to bring those two planets into orbit around Draconda. What? But risks must be taken. This is not a risk, Asmael. This is doomsday. Vestal's colonization is not of this planet, but the universe. Nowhere would be safe from invasion. But John, what story are we going to talk about now? We're going to talk about the twin dilemma. The twin dilemma? The twin dilemma? The twin dilemma? (laughs) I see what you did there. Thank you. According to the TARDIS wiki, the Twin Dilemma was the seventh and final serial of season 21 of Doctor Who. It was the first full story to feature Colin Baker as the sixth Doctor, uniquely being the final story of the season. It was also the last story to feature half-hour episodes until season 23, and the first episode since the, the Power of the Daleks to feature a new Doctor's full debut partway through a season rather than at the start introduced uh, a new and more colourful rendition of the Starfield-themed title sequence by Sid Sutton, which featured the Sixth Doctor's face appearing in a flash of rainbow streaks and changing from a smile to a large grin. Don't get me started on that. The story has received an especially bad track record for criticism, a complete uh, contrary to the reception of the previous serial. Three polls in Doctor Who magazine voted it the worst story ever in 
SFX 150, issue 150, Russell T. Davis cites the story as the beginning of the end of Doctor Who. Wow. Imagine that's a serious charge that's to make. That's a very, very serious fun. charge. Dave, yeah. how do you find this story? Guilty or not guilty? Or not proven <laughs> to go to Scottish court case? I, I've said many times that um, on the podcast that Doctor Who stories work best when they're in context with the stories around them. And watching them in isolation can sometimes harm them. Sometimes, you know, it can raise them. The last time I properly watched Twin Dilemma was when I was in the middle of my whole big, the only time I've done it, my whole big consecutive watch through of the entire series, which I, I started in 2008 and there was a few gaps and a leisurely pace. It took me like four years or whatever. And my memory of Twin Dilemma from the last time I'd watched it, now this was obviously in its proper context right at the end of Peter Davison's last few, you know, stories, straight after Caves of Androzani, with that continuing plotline of the Doctor having regenerated, Perry not being with the Doctor for very long, etc. And my main memory from the last time I watched it was how much I'd enjoyed it, because, as I think I've also said, Peter Davison, sadly, was very underwritten as the Doctor a lot of the time, and Twin Dilemma, kicks off with a, a doctor who is full-blooded and strong and confident and, you know, rainbow whirlwind right at the heart of it. And Colin is absolutely the best thing about this. So I remember when I watched it as part of my big watch through that I really enjoyed it because it was the next chapter in the ongoing saga. You know, this is what happens to the doctor after Andrzej one, the period after Andrzej. You know, you mentioned there, John mentioned there how it's, it's, um, it's polling has always been historically very low. And I always thought that was very unfair. But it pains me to say it that I watched it this time and thought it was absolutely appalling in a way that I've never thought before. I remember watching it in transmission and being excited at the new docs and being into it. I even remember seeing one episode in black and white because I was out at my grand's on that Friday night. So that probably would have been either episode two or episode four. I think it was episode two. So I, I wouldn't have seen episode two in, in colour until it came out in VHS and 92 as a release exclusive. Did you both buy it as a release exclusive in 92? I did. Got it signed by Colin Baker when he was in tour in Glasgow. Awesome. Yeah, I did. Remember getting getting Feather to drive it out to Johnson because that was the nearest Woolworths, so I could nip in and get it. But no, back to what I was saying, I watching it this time, devoid of its context as part of the ongoing saga, all of its flaws were just magnified for me 100%. And I was appalled at some of the performances. Colin's great, Nicola's great. The script, there's some elements of the script of the Doctor and Perry's relationship that I think it's a bad, it's a bad decision then. I still think it's a bad decision now, but watching it in isolation, it's really quite unpleasant watching it because they're just so spiky and you sort of think, right, why was Perry not insisting on being taken home straight away? Because this is really, really horrible. I think, you know, well, obviously, I think it's been said since that, you know, the character felt this sort of responsibility because the Doctor had saved her life and all that. The things that really struck me as being particularly bad was the giant slug saying that he found Perry pleasing. <laughs> Continuing that Eric Saber theme of all the, the baddies lusting after Perry, like Sharon's Jack did, and like Syl and all that. I think, except Syl didn't, but you know, Shock Eye from the two doctors, he wanted to eat her. You can't blame him. I was appalled by the sets. People often mock the, the dialogue and the performances of the, the police, space police people, but I thought they were one of the best things in it. The, the two twins, they were fine. They weren't the worst thing about it. The Jacondans, they just, I mean, I think this this was this, the, the story that inspired Victoria Wood's famous Doctor Who sketch. 
you know, with the tinfoil, tinfoil sets and just the, the awful dialogue and the, you know, the scene that really stuck out the most for me was just really highlighting how shoddy this was and how, I mean, obviously it was the end of the season, there probably wasn't a lot of money. They, you know, they could have hung some black drapes up instead of the tinfoil and it would look better. But the scene when, when Asmail dies, Peter Moffat directed this. And I think Peter Moffat has to be, you know, the, probably the most, un, I think Kerry and I have talked about this in the podcast before, has to be probably the most uninspiring Doctor Who director to ever work on it. Asmail's entire struggle with the giant, the giant slug guy, Mestor. How good is the scene where Colin confronts Mestor? You know, I've been watch it, Mestor. It's amazing. The entire struggle of, of Asmail is played out in a two-shot between Colin and Morris Denham, with no effects, no close-ups of Morris Denham to try and show that. Just, I'm miming the acting now. It was so flat. It could have been so more dramatic. It's, I mean, it works because you, to an extent, because you've got two very good actors. They're very good at just doing what they have to do, but it could have been so much better, maybe intercutting between Mestor focusing on Asmail, Asmail struggling in a close-up, the Doctor looking, you know, but it's just this played out in this flat, awful, uninspired two-shot, and flat is the word I've got for it, really, overall. I was su genuinely surprised by how bad I thought it was. Having said that, there are many subsequent stories in the modern era that I would rather watch the Twin Dilemma again rather than watch any of them, so it's not all bad. John? Could you find much in the way to redeem it? Gosh, that was a bit of a handbrake turn. I was agreeing emphatically with David all the way through until it's kind of stopped there because I remember watching it on transmission and thinking this is actually quite good for exactly the same reason that you picked up on, which was I felt as much as I liked The Fifth Doctor, he was written rather insipidly. And by contrast, you got the sense of this is someone who's, who's really enjoying this and you're not going to be able to ignore this character he's going to command everyone's attention in every scene which i suppose he does thereafter so i i wasn't really aware of the the kind of the shoddy production value side of things i thought the script was quite clever and you know i didn't really well well obviously the, the, the Mestor and the slugs and all that, you kind of think, well, okay, that's, that is slightly naff. I remember my my mother happened to be watching one of the episodes with me at the time, and she kind of, I think she was reading the, the Green Act the Green Telly, our local news organ, kind of glanced over, and she said, oh, that's terrifying. And she said it so unconvincingly. Um, <laughs> I, it, was, I said, yeah, yeah, mum, uh-huh. Yeah, so, so, so I was, I was, prepared you know to say well okay let's let's argue for a re-evaluation of this but yeah I have to I have to agree um, with with the rest of the critique in terms of how it's filmed is extremely flat I don't know who who, who tweeted something about Peter Moffat's casting style and comparing it with the classic Troughton episodes but we know everything's shot from from behind yep. <laughs> comparing how Troughton confronts the enemies and the monsters compared to uh, the way Peter Davison gets to uh, you know so so that yeah there are clearly all sorts of misjudgments about about that but also in terms of the the characterization uh, you know you you do want to kind of put a, a degree of clear water between you and the previous incarnation but to have the doctor so unstable so um, 
unpredictable and violent and callous and so on uh, was genuinely jarring I think for, for, for many people so I would have to I'd have to agree with you there and not to again don't get me started on the the grin and don't get me started on the uh, on the choice of costume um, well you're here I mean what, what do you what, what's your thoughts on the costume because that that'd be a good thing to talk about I quite like the costume because it, to my mind and I, I felt this at the time and I felt it in context when I, when I, when I did, my, did my big watch through was it returns the doctor to being a magical man from space rather than an English cricketer guy you know I can accept it was a it was a stupid decision on John Nathan Turner's part it reduces his I would agree with every assertion that it doesn't work, but I think in context, you know, you could, I think if you can look for a positive, that's the one to find, but you know, what do you think about it? I think it's part of, I mean, if, if Russell T. Davis said it was the beginning of the end of Doctor Who, I would say yeah. that there were little seeds of that um, way back in the, the, the conceptual choice of question marks on Tom Baker's lapels in his final season. Once you started doing that, that for me was something un unraveled, and and so to have that as a as a motif, as part of a costume, you know, that for me feels like a costume, you know, a bit like the Riddler. So so I, I just thought it was, I just thought it was naff. I thought, particularly, I felt real sympathy for Colin Baker, because he obviously, and he's he's said this in interviews, of course, that he would rather have worn something else, much more sober and indeed suave. And to think, oh, God, it must have been awful for him having to, you know, jump about in that monstrosity. I've often wondered how he felt the day he was first shown it, you know, the first time he had to put it on, you know. Well, I mean, he probably thought as the new guy, he didn't have the, the, the power to sort of question it. I mean, it's far it's a far cry from, you know, when they basically let Matt Smith pick his own costume and Davy Davy Tennant had a, a you know a bit of input and wasn't a long coat and all that sort of thing. It's 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 fun. What do you what do you think of Twin Dilemma this time then, Ken? Well, it's I think at the heart of the Twin Dilemma, I really like the idea of the fact that Miss Thor is trying to basically take over the universe by sending out his babies and using mathematics to disrupt the orbit and send these eggs out into space, which I think is pretty much it's like the crinoids, the sort of thing that they did. But unfortunately, I think the execution of it, as you said, is disappointing. Colin is absolutely giving it his all. He's waited all his life to play the Doctor and he approaches the part with absolute relish. But unfortunately, what he's served up with is not the greatest fodder. You mentioned the costume there. For me, there's something about the 60s Joker to him, to the whole outfit for me. It's got that sort of similar length, colour, cut of the coat and there's something about it it just makes me it just screams 60s batman to me and i actually tweeted a picture of caesar romero a few years ago in fact it was, it was last year saying gonna tell my daughter this was the sixth doctor and colin actually saw it and replied i'd rather you didn't and thought oh so yeah it's uh, <laughs> that was uh, something but the bizarre thing is <laughs> when you look at the version of his outfit in blue which characterizes did in the action figure it actually looks when it's in various shades of blue it's actually really quite nice. That's the the one I'm holding up here is the rather exclusive uh, 13 Doctor set that came out for 
with Peter Capaldi in it and calling in the real time coat but done up properly and I think it looks I think it's beautifully done when you see the costume like that so it's close but just no cigar there in terms of the other characters I remember being disappointed in first viewing that Hugo Lang wasn't staying on as a companion because I thought he was quite yes. interesting I think Kevin McNally plays him really well he's quite endearing although the fact that he goes looking in the TARDIS wardrobe and he finds his gun power pack in virtually like the second thing that he looks in so perhaps next time you're hiding a power pack for a, a weapon guys don't hide it in the costume room near the front and in terms of the music for this it's awful jarring and clunky and you see I feel a bit sorry for Edwin Richfield as Mestor as he's giving it all the whole performance into the voice uh, quite a far cry from Captain Hart and the Sea Devils but I think really, when a script like this comes in, there's really not very much you can do with it. I mean, you've got the cast are trying their hardest, particularly the the three leads, and it's just not quite clicking for me, I'm afraid to say. I read something once, and I don't know if either of you have ever heard this, that some, that apparently um, the guy that wrote it, or whose name is on Anthony Stevens, apparently his electronic typewriter exploded, so Saber <laughs> had to do a lot of work. Have you ever heard that? No. I don't know. Maybe maybe a listener can confirm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's. I mean, you're right. You say the mess. What Mestor's plan is quite a good, interesting sci-fi monster Doctor Who body idea. Just you know, everything else around it that's 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 pretty poor, unfortunately. We should say. I mean, Colin is phenomenal in it. He really is. You can tell right from the start. It's very. It's very different from what Johnsy is sort of given to do in Spearhead. You know, if we're comparing them, because Johnsy is not really. There at the start, Spearhead gradually builds up, but right from the word go, what do you think, Perry? He's phenomenal, and I love the way he kind of, he's in, he Collins in full control of the performance. You can tell that, and there's a lot of very subtle stuff going on, and amidst all the, the grandiose sort of posturing. I, I'd love to, I'd love to talk to him one day about, I'd love to watch Twin Dilemma with Colin and talk to him about every scene, and what do you think about this? What do you think about that? How much was you? How much was, you know, because I always feel, especially watching some of his early stories, that he's he he's doing his best to raise it a little, a little bit above, you know, what he's actually been served. And I really like the final scene. Where I'm now fully stabilised and all that sort of stuff. And you you watch that final scene and you think it kind of echoes what you said about waiting his whole life. You think, I mean, you'd think he'd been doing it for years, rather than you know a fortnight of transmission time. He's just over a week of transmission time. He's so good. He's he's definitely the best thing about it. And it's I mean, it, there's so there's so much we've said before, and so many people have said before that you know, Colin's time as a doctor is the biggest wasted opportunity in the whole the whole TV series, in my opinion. And you know, he really deserved better. And it's a shame that while it's not completely awful, you know, a different director might have made it a little livelier, a bit better paced. A different designer might have done some more interesting work. But you know, it's a shame that he wasn't given a stronger, you know, a little stronger story to start with. Well, that's us discussed, The Twin Dilemma, and it's time to move on to our next one, whether you like it or not. Ooh. Decorated. 
Next, Good one. we're going to talk about Deep Breath, the debut of the 12th Doctor. Dave, do you have something to tell us about Deep Breath? Righty, I'll take a deep breath and start reading. Deep Breath was the first episode of Series 8 of Doctor Who. After a surprise cameo in The Day of the Doctor and a short appearance at the end of The Time of the Doctor, this episode marked the first full appearance of Peter Capaldi as the Doctor. Matt Smith made an appearance as the 11th Doctor at the end of the episode in a surprise cameo set directly before his regeneration. Now that's buzz, repetition there for surprise cameos. Must do better. The episode also introduced Missy, oh God, so it does, a character whose motives and true identity would remain a mystery until Dark Water and Courtney Woods, a mischief-making co-host student. Following the success of the theatrical simulcast of The Day of the Doctor, this premiere episode also received the release in cinemas across the world. It had an extended runtime of 76 minutes. Behind the scenes, Stephen Moffat had collaborated with former head writer Russell T. Davis to create a reason behind why the Doctor sometimes takes on the appearance of people who have previously appeared on the show. Right, yeah, okay. The reason behind the 12th Doctor's familiar appearance was later revealed in the Series 9 episode, The Girl Who Died. Yes, okay, at least said about that, the better. Beginning with this story, all following series of Doctor Who until Series 11 were now only comprised of 12 episodes and a Christmas special, while Series 1 through 7 had 13 episodes. Well, Kenny, I feel you've been waiting since the podcast was first conceived to talk about this one. Give us your thoughts on Deep Breath. Yeah, now, for me, Deep Breath and the twin dilemma have an awful lot of similarities. Now, bear me out in this. These stories are coming a year after a massive celebration story. It's a year after a massive event that drew the general public to watch it. Everybody loved Doctor Who. And you've suddenly replaced a younger, popular Doctor with an older man who's slightly more grumpy and slightly more edge and slightly less immediately likeable. And I think that's quite an interesting fact. You've got history repeating itself there. Whether Stephen Moffat intended to do that, I don't know. But I have loved Deep Breath since the first time I saw it. I didn't get to go to a cinema screening because I was working that night. I was doing a shift at the Sunday Post, some doing some sports page subbing. And I was desperate to go home to watch it. And I instantly thought, I like this Doctor. You've got that wonderful opening scene when the TARDIS has landed and the dinosaur spits out the TARDIS and it lands and you've got Jenny Vastra and Strax there. So immediately you've got that familiarity with people who we know, who know the Doctor and come out and then you've got Clara getting to grips with this new man and wanting him to change back. Again, quite like Perry was with the Sixth Doctor. And we've got this wonderful, subtle sequel to The Girl in the Fireplace where you've got the androids, rather than replacing spaceship parts, they're actually replacing themselves as they strive to become human going around. We've got the Doctor behaving slightly erratically. I do enjoy his wonderful chats with the dinosaur with my lady. And I think I think at one point he refers to her as a big woman. I think that's quite unusual for the Doctor. But we have the wonderful bit when the Doctor's sort of realising, I'm Scottish. And, uh, <laughs> and talking about how it means that he can be angry. And it's wonderful. It's definitely been written by a Scotsman with a, with a sort of uh, long distance enchantment with his homeland and also a slight disdain of how everything is going, particularly the line about the eyebrows when they're wanting to secede and go off and form their own country. And oh, wonderful. Very, very funny. In terms of a plot, I think it is really quite neat the fact you've got human body parts being taken, and in this case, a dinosaur. But the fact that they're so callous about it, the androids, the fact they only needed a tiny bit of the dinosaur's iris. 
and they just and that's it and they just don't care they've got the wonderful sequence where they're in the underground base when the doctor and clara are being united and taken down and let's be honest when we find out that clara's got to hold her breath how many of us held our breath at the same time as clara's going around did you do that john mm-hmm. dave did you yep. I didn't this time, sorry. <laughs> but you have previously. <laughs> um, I can't remember. Yes, you did. I'll say, say, I'll say, I'll say why when I, I speak. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, I find that when you've got moments like that in TV and film, when it, that, that to me that shows there's a level of engagement when you want to sort of join in with the characters like that. Clara's very interesting in this one, as I know that Dave and I have discussed in other episodes that you've, you don't particularly like the Doctor's relationship with Clara and think it's like the, the company businessman chasing around his secretary. But I think in this one, it's very much the case of Clara getting used to the fact that her boyfriend has gone. And I really, really enjoy that bit at the end when Matt pops up, which bizarrely, I actually knew every single line of dialogue for that before I'd seen the episode. And I can't remember how I knew that. But I must have definitely read it somewhere and seen it. But um, I think it's quite a nice touch just to reassure not only Clara, but the audience that this is the same man. And the fact they're saying that he's scared and it just shows this is a the doctor sort of coming to terms with a new brain, a new way of thinking, a new way of looking at things, which he hasn't obviously been through before. It's quite an interesting touch showing that, you know, regeneration is, well, yes, it's a rebirth. It's also a scary thing because he's died. And I think that's something that's not always played up in regeneration stories as the Doctor finds who he is. And something I particularly enjoy is the final confrontation with the lead android, with the pair of them as they're flying over London. Just think, what a wonderful escape pod. It's powered by balloons. And just shows you how desperate the androids were to get away from being underground. And it's they're not going to get very far with a balloon-based system. Like that. They'll probably maybe get to as far as Salisbury or somewhere like that. But I doubt they'd make it to the channel. But yes, I particularly enjoyed that last scene and the did he fall or was he pushed? And even now when I watched it, I've watched that scene three times and I still don't have an answer to myself. What was it? And I would love to know what Stephen had in mind, what his take on it is. I think because we're not sure of this Doctor, again, like the Sixth Doctor, we're not quite sure what his motives are and how he works. And because he's so erratic at this point and definitely slightly more of an attitude very very strange but i particularly love it at the end when clara's waiting for the doc to return and she's back into her lovely wee outfit and i can see that can't i and the tardis returns and there's the doctor in his wonderful outfit and the gwyn and you just get to see that wonderful new look tardis it is just so inspiring i would love to go in i could have lived there the fact you've got what was the matte tardis but it looks completely different different lighting the fact there's bookshelves around there but for me, it's it's a brand new rebirth. Really enjoyed it. And I particularly like the fact that we get the late Liz Sladen's widower, Brian Miller, pops up as the Tramp Fellow. And I think that's quite a nice wee touch just to, to bring in a member of the family. and Because it was at that point, Liz Sladen hadn't that long passed. So yeah, for me, Deep Breath is a very interesting, different take. It feels very different to what's been the immediately prior era. And... For me, it takes the show off in a completely different direction. John, how do you feel about it? I don't know if it's been written about before or if it's just one of my genuinely, you know, um, original thoughts, but I've always found the title really interesting that Deep Breath is not just about uh, the fact that they have to hold their breath in order to escape the, the clockwork androids. There's a kind of an unknowing 
nod, I think, from Stephen Moffat that this is a this is a risk that's being taken. This reboot could go either way uh, because you're moving from this very young, charismatic figure, not a fan, but who gets it from the word go, to this established, very well-known actor who is also a very well-known Doctor Who fan, but who's going to be playing a different incarnation of the Doctor. And yeah, you don't know what, how it's how it's going to go. So for me, there's there's that bit of the, okay, let's, let's see what happens here in this deep breath. And, and for me, it absolutely works on every level. I don't think there's anything that I didn't like. I just thought it was so clever, that word that gets overused, I think, when you're talking about Moffat's stories. I think that maybe the inhumanity of the Doctor, the crankiness, the callousness that gets carried into the next few stories, I realise we're only talking about this one, but you know, I think that's that was maybe overplayed and might have been a bit of a misjudgment, maybe taken a bit far. But I think Capaldi is so good and so funny. For me, he's one of the most genuinely funny doctors, again, in that kind of understated way. But even the whole thing with Vastra about, you know, the kind of the mind meld thing, sorry to use that Star Trek term, <laughs> putting him to sleep and all that, and piano dropping, uh, and he just clunks down. I just think that's that's just one of many funny things about this story, which sets the tone for the whole of Capaldi's tenure. But there is also this thing about genuine threat. You know, you, you were saying, Kenny, about, you know, holding your, your breath, the kind of the scene in the subterranean layer. There is genuine threat there. You do feel that, you do feel, I certainly did feel that sense of being trapped and wanting to, or needing to escape. So yeah, there was just such a lot of good stuff in there. And, you know, again, the fact that so much of it had a Scottish accent was great. Yeah. Certainly the sequence of Astra when they're discussing the accents, like they're all talking exactly, funny. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. that. That's probably just a Scottish person thing. Dave, exactly. I'm interested to hear your take on it because this isn't quite as extreme as later Capaldi stories go, which I know you're not a fan of. So I'm very interested in how you thought the Capaldi era began. Well, it was very, very interesting watching this one again because I don't think I'd watched, I certainly hadn't watched it at least since 2014. I had probably watched it a maximum of three, four times tops. Probably transmission. The thing I remembered actually, the night of transmission was the night I did my ice bucket challenge. <laughs> That's on YouTube, people, if you want to look for it. Or maybe I'll tweet a link if anyone's remotely interested. <laughs> That's what I meant. That was that was the zeitgeist. We were all ice bucket challenging and and such like. Where, where were we all in? Two, so where where were you? You were at the sun. You were subbing at the sun. Where were you, John, in 2014? What were you doing at that point? 2014, I was doing my uh, ice bucket challenge out in my sister's back. I was still teaching at Glasgow University at that point as well. Um, nope. So, yeah. Nope. I was at HMV Glasgow 4. I'd been there for about eight months, I think, by that point, eight, nine months, and just having, having the best time, having my best life. Good times. But anyway, yes, Deep Breath, I had not watched it in a very, very long time, and I had a very, very interesting, surprising sort of reaction to this. I'm trying to articulate it now. I was a massive fan of the Matt Smith Doctor, without over-sentimentalising it. He, sort of, he was the Doctor when my dad died, and I think I kind of clung to him a little bit as a result of that. So I was very upset, very sad when he went. I really, really missed him. And I think I experienced a little bit of resistance to to PCAP when, that, when, when he took over, which is probably natural, although I was delighted, as I've said many times, when Peter Capaldi was cast. I was very, very pleased. We've talked a lot in the podcast about 
my dissatisfaction with a lot of the, the aspects of the Capaldi era. It was very interesting watching this story and realising how much of the stuff that I hadn't liked isn't there at the start. Obviously, it feeds in and develops through you know a lot of the plots, isn't it? So there was that aspect of that. And there, was, there wasn't a lot of stuff that got in the way. But there's also the fact I've had time to miss the Capaldi Doctor. You know, I think it's coming up in what, was it 2017, his last episode? Yeah. That's, nearly, that's obviously nearly four years. That's a long time. When all the Doctor actors did their little bit to thank the NHS and the BBC's big night in last year, you know, near the start of the pandemic, he was the one when he appeared that actually, believe it or not, made me sort of choke and tear up a little bit because I realised that I was starting to miss him for that point. Because I, as I've also said in the podcast, I loved his final series. I thought a lot of the extremes of the Moffat approach that I hadn't liked were kind of reined in and it was it was such a good idea, you know, such a good cast with the Doctor and, and Matt and, and Pearl and the brilliant idea of the Doctor being the uni lecturer, all that. So I've, I'd had time to miss him and I developed an appreciation for him that I didn't really have in 2014, as I've already said as well. I think last Christmas and some of the other episodes of that year are, among, are amongst the worst Doctor Who ever made. Uh, last Christmas is still my least favourite episode of Doctor Who, the one that's the closest ever to me to making me just want to give up. So it was really interesting watching this story and absolutely loving it, because I really didn't expect to. I think, and that was mainly because I've had the experience of getting used to this Doctor and missing him. So for the first time in a long time, actually going back and seeing where he started was fascinating. I should say that I still laughed at the scene when Clara says, you okay to, to Strax to send up the paper? <laughs> and he knocks her out with it. I thought that was hilarious. All the stuff with the water was hilarious, you know. <laughs> I still get irritated by, you know, Jenny and Strax, not Strax, Jenny and Madame Bastra's relationship being shoved down her throats. Is it bestiality? I don't know. But having met Eve McIntosh in the pub a couple of years ago, I can't really say anything bad about her because she's lovely. And she went to the same primary school as me, so that's another good thing. I really enjoyed it. I even didn't get annoyed at the, the Moffat recycling aspects of the plot. You know, Kenny told us about it was a sequel to a loose thematic sort of sequel to The Girl in the Fireplace. I wasn't bothered by any of that. I really enjoyed revisiting the beginning of a Doctor that I grew to love, a Doctor that I wasn't too fond of initially, a Doctor I felt wasn't very well served with the stories he was given and the plot lines he was given, and to an extent, the characterization that he sort of had at the start. So it was really interesting to go back and, and see that and sort of say, and still see that the guy who I liked an awful lot to, to be angry about him leaving in 2017 that a lot of the, the character that we had then was was still there you know almost in a you know a, an unformed sense but you know he was still there and you know john mentioned how the the sort of the crankiness shall we say or the the, the inhuman aspect was really kind of shoveled in over subsequent episodes it's not really in there in the deep breath so he does really feel like the doctor i'm not a fan of, of the need to on the writer's part to explain why the doctor had the same face as a character as a a popular character actor who's already appeared in the programme. I think it's when you start going down explaining that sort of route, it's nonsense because you could you could argue, I suppose, that the Sixth Doctor chose Maxwell's face because he wanted to be more assertive than his previous body. So he took some, he took the face of someone who'd been able to overpower his previous body. I often talk about how um, I think the Seventh Doctor was inspired by the the hospital porter and spear from space, and how the Eighth Doctor was inspired by. Professor Clifford Jones and how the Fourth Doctor was inspired by Eckersley, but a lot of the characterisation doesn't really work. No, I really enjoyed Deep Breath. It almost made me want to keep going, but um, I don't know if I'll do that. I may do. The phone call from Matt at the end, I forgot about that completely. And as one of the people who had it spoiled, I knew it was coming. I think I can't remember if I guessed it from seeing a photograph of the location of Jenna on the phone. 
or if, you know, because I'd seen obviously the dangling telephone receiver at the end of Time of the Doctor, so I wasn't too surprised by it. But that wiped me out this time. It was maybe you could argue a case it would be over the pudding, but I thought it was it was perfectly balanced. And the fact that she's having a conversation with the doctor, or the doctor still stood in front of her, I thought it was really, really well done. It could have been on Buchanan Street. It looked like Buchanan Street. Maybe it was the top of Saki. I don't know, but it worked. I was convinced it was Glasgow. No, I really, really enjoyed it. Out of the three stories today that we've talked about, I will say it's definitely the one that I got the most out of revisiting. I kind of want to watch it again. I enjoyed it so much, and I was really, really surprised by that. But it was a, it was a really pleasant surprise. Are you yeah. surprised at me saying even so positive? I'm genuinely surprised and delighted, as a former producer of the show once said. It's <laughs> it's but it's great though. That's the wonderful thing about going back and watching stuff you haven't done in a while and just thinking, yeah. my God, this is amazing. It's something that you just haven't. I mean, expected. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of the flip side of what I was saying about the Twin Dilemma because I sort of say that I felt that I enjoyed Twin Dilemma more in its context, whereas I think I got more out of Deep Breath watching it out of context. So I'm contradicting myself again, but I'm a Pisces and that's in my nature. So <laughs> so what do you, what can you do? What can you do? What can you do? Absolutely. John, what star <laughs> sign are you? Uh, I'm another water sign. I'm a Cancerian. Oh. I'm a Gemini, so <laughs> watch what you say. Very well. <laughs> Called you Tom? Oh no! I said we'll probably end up getting on very well, but I called you Tom, which is a terrible Freudian slip. But at least it means that the Mister Harris gets another pension. Who? Hi, hi, Tom, if you're listening. Is that part of your contractual obligation? You've got to say that. It probably has to be. Yeah. When are we going to Lasani, Tom? When are we taking the dogs to walk, Tom? I haven't seen you in real life in months. Come on. Well, remember to follow us on Twitter at Power of Three Pod. That's Power of Three with a number three rather than written out in full. We've also got our Facebook page, which we probably will update possibly sometime next year. So feel free to pop by, like the page, and share your thoughts on our episodes. Dave, time to plug your Twitter and your other podcast. Yes, you can find me on Twitter at DaveAdSteel, but you can also, if you're remotely interested, you can check out the, the Earth 2 podcast, which to myself and Peter, who appeared recently on the podcast, and hopefully they'll appear again. However, more or less chronological chronological journey through the DC Comics multiverse prior to Crisis and Infinite Earths. John, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, they can find me at, he said, looking at his Twitter handle. I wish it was more straightforward. At Dr. J. McGB. That's too hard for me to spell out. Um, <laughs> Rolls off anyway, the tongue. If you, if you Google John Boland, then that will show up. I should point out that the only reason why I ever did a PhD was to get people to call me doctor um, <laughs> to experience that little frisson that I never got a proper cake but at least I got a similar title out of it so uh, well it's very uh, good of you to join us tonight dear doctor yes John thank you thank you for sort of being with us I hope you'll, I hope you'll come back again I hope we haven't scared you off it's been my huge pleasure so from me Kenny thank you very much for joining us me David um, again I'll echo that thanks for joining us look after yourselves take care we'll see you next time and from me, John, thank you for having me. Keep safe, everyone. Right, Ken, what are we playing out with then? Well, Dave, I'm glad you asked me that. Since this week we've been talking about the first stories of Three Doctors, so it seemed appropriate to head back to 1998 and get your 1990s looky likey Tommy Scott, the front man of Liverpool band Space, to give us their UK number 21 hit, Begin Again. How can I love again? Now she's gone again. I'm on that ship again, all a sinking heart I am so lonely And the man who I'd kill for love I'd kill for love Who 
Begin again, and all around again, tight 